Good morning, church. It is so good to be back here today. Um, I hope you've all, you're all really well and I hope you've got your Bible ready because we've got three readings this morning. The first one's coming from Judges, which is just after Joshua. We're going to move straight on to Ruth and then we're going to jump to John. So please open your Bibles to Judges chapter 21. We're going to be reading verse 25. Judges chapter 21, verse 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We're going to be continuing on now with Ruth. Ruth chapter 1, verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem and Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Marlon and Kilian died so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on their way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters, why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters, go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you will go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi, when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. 
and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. Please turn now with me to John chapter 6. We're going to be reading from John chapter 6, verses 60 to 69. John chapter 6, verse 60. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And this is the word of God. Back live. There we go. Excellent. Big good morning to everyone on the live stream at home and to everyone sitting here. Uh, If you go to that camera, uh, for those on the live stream at home, you'll notice that there are people sitting here. Uh, We are doing a trial run of the service. Uh, So people came in this morning, they they sanitized their hands, they checked in with Eventbrite, uh, and they're wearing masks as well uh, uh, for the benefit and safety of everyone here. Uh, so, uh, just in case everyone at home is uh, wondering what's happening, that's uh, why and why people are here. Uh, that's the reason why. Uh, a big happy Father's Day as well to all the dads out there. Um, I was greeted this morning uh, with some wonderful uh, personal handmade gifts as well as a bowl of uh, two-minute noodles. Um, and that's just a perfect gift at this particular time for me as well. Um, and uh, we rejoice with all the fathers um, uh, amongst our church. Uh, as well as remember those uh, who have lost their fathers recently, uh, as well as um, uh, those who have had struggles uh, with their, in relationship with their fathers. Uh, we thank God that God is our heavenly father uh, and that all earthly fathership uh, derives from his fatherhood of us. And so fathers, be encouraged to keep reflecting God uh, and his goodness and likeness uh, to your family. Uh, big congratulations as well to Andrew and Mel, who are sitting here with us today on the birth and the welcoming into this world of Elias Inzu Chin. Um, we, give you, we give God thanks so much uh, for delivering him safely. And we, uh, if you can pray with us that he'll continue to grow big and strong. Melissa um, made an announcement on Facebook uh, and noted that he came, he was too excited to enter the world. And so he came roughly 10 weeks early. Uh, so if you can continue to pray that he grows big and strong over the coming weeks. Uh, otherwise, let's keep our Bibles open. Um, it's been a long time since I've been able to look around at people's faces, and I am really excited and really, really encouraged to, ha- uh, to have the people here today. At home, if you have your Bibles with you as well, keep them open to Ruth chapter 1. We'll be walking through it, reading some bits and referring to other bits as well. And uh, let me pray, as always to begin our time. Father in heaven, as we start our new sermon series in the book of Ruth, 
we pray that you would bless us. Many of us may be familiar with the overall story, but we pray for fresh eyes. Help us to see the text again, to marvel at how you have carefully crafted this story and to marvel at how this story points us so clearly to the work of Jesus for us. We pray that we would, you would bless us now as you read and listen to this word together again. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's common in job interviews to be asked, where do you see yourself in five years' time? I'm guessing in 2015, nobody could have guessed what life would be like in 2020. This year has been one truly of chaos. The Australian bushfires kicked off the year uh, in devastating fashion. The COVID-19 pandemic hit shortly afterwards, uh, and we're still feeling the effects of that today. And then a few months ago, the death of George Floyd sparked protests, not just in America, but across the world, some of which also turned violent. This year has been one of the most chaotic years in memory, a time of deep trouble and distress. Now, a few months ago, I was reading an, a very helpful article about God and the coronavirus, but one of the comments I noticed on the article was this, there is no God. If there was a God, he would have stopped this virus already. That's a good point. In times of chaos, in times of trouble, it's natural for us to ask the question, where is God? What is he doing? And that's what makes going through Ruth at this particular time a very good idea. You see, the book of Ruth is set not only within a time of deep trouble and chaos, but it also answers that big question, what is God doing? Where is he? Before we get into it, let's get a brief overview of this book. At first glance, the book of Ruth seems like a, just a very simple love story. A book that, uh, of the Bible that is often quoted and turned to, especially when we want to talk about biblical relationships and what sort of man or woman to look for and how you should conduct yourself when you're interested in someone. But as much as this is a love story, it's also way more than that. It's a, it's a book dealing with bigger questions than just the romantic. The book of Ruth is a short story, one of the shortest and most neatly and tightly packaged stories in the Bible. Ruth has four chapters, 85 verses, and let me encourage you over the coming four weeks as we read through this book to read through it yourself multiple times. It's very easy to read through in one sitting. And unlike other larger narrative books like Joshua, for instance, that we've just been through, the narrator here in the book of Ruth is actually inviting us to notice all of the details and to dwell on how he has carefully constructed this story. So when you zoom out and look at the book as a whole, you can see how it has been so carefully constructed. First, the book opens with a flurry of names and it ends with a flurry of names. It opens with famine, with emptiness, with tragedy and death, but it ends in the opposite with harvest, with fullness, with joy and birth. And then you see in these middle two chapters a, parallel, a series of parallel conversations between Ruth and Naomi, Ruth and Boaz, and then Ruth and Naomi again. This is a wonderfully constructed book. 
It's also amazing how much of this book is taken up just purely by dialogue. Some two-thirds, I think, uh, I, I highlighted it the other day, uh, if you, you print it out and just highlight any time there's dialogue, some two-thirds of this book is devoted to conversation. And just as amazing, in all of this conversation and dialogue, God does not speak once. In fact, God is never mentioned directly by the narrator as actually speaking or doing anything in particular. The characters in the book speak about God. They hear about God doing things, but the narrator doesn't actually tell us, for example, like in Joshua, uh, that God speaks, and we don't read of God intentionally doing anything. And that is by design. Because as we read through this story, even though God doesn't speak at all, it is clear that he is the one orchestrating all of the events in this book. What our world would call coincidence, the Bible calls providence. Providence is, I think, the key theme in this book. Providence is the biblical doctrine that God is working in all things, in all events, in his creatures and through nature to bring about his good and intended purposes. And God does his providential work here in the book of Ruth at a deep and dark, chaotic time. In answer to the question of where is God in the chaos, the book of Ruth answers very clearly that he is providentially at work. Our book, Ruth chapter 1, opens, however, with a very tragic introduction. Uh, We are told about this deep and dark time in the very first few words in verse 1. Have a look again at verse 1. In the days when the judges ruled. Now, the time of the judges, the book prior to the book of Ruth, is horrific. Uh, You only need to read through the last four chapters of the book of Judges to get an idea of that. In the last four chapters of the book of Judges, you have not only idolatry, but the story culminates in the gang rape, the killing, and the dismemberment of a priest's concubine and the near destruction of an Israelite tribe, and the kidnapping and forced marriage of a bunch of innocent girls. It is a thoroughly horrific time in Israel's history. And through that time, through those last few chapters, the narrator of Judges keeps dropping a particular line to help us understand why all of this is happening. He drops this line, In those days there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. You see, not only did they not have an earthly king, but God was not their king. And when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, it is a horrific disaster. See, that is the setting for the book of Ruth, a thoroughly and deeply chaotic time. As we read on in verse 1, we find out that there was a famine in the land. Now, the land referred to here is the promised land, a land that was meant to be flowing with milk and honey. Famine sparks a signal in our brains that judgment is bearing down on Israel. Famine was a curse for disobedience in the law. So the land flowing with milk and honey has had its taps turned off. Our attention then is drawn to a man of Bethlehem, packing up his family to head off. Now, before we move on, it's, it's, I think we, it's good to note that the decision to leave the land by this man and his family was probably a natural one. 
If your family was starving and there was no food, no longer any food, then you would be forced and naturally to move your entire family. It'd be a wise thing to do. And the narrator here doesn't make any particular comment on whether this move, the move away, was a bad thing. But the choice of destination is head-scratching. You see, this man moves from his family to Moab. Now, Moab is not just a town down the road or just another country. It's not like he's moving interstate between Queensland and New South Wales, nor even a comparative move from, say, Singapore to Australia. The, the move, moving from Bethlehem in Judah to Moab was kind of like moving from America to North Korea. It's going to enemy territory. See, places in the Bible have associations. Moab doesn't have any good associations with it. So in Genesis 19, verse 30 to 38, we learn that Moab is one of the children born out of the incestuous relationship between Lot and his two daughters. In Numbers 22 and 24, uh, to 24, Moab hired the prophet Balaam to try and curse Israel as they were wandering through their territory. In Numbers 25, Israelite men were seduced by Moabite women to sexual immorality and idol worship. In Deuteronomy 23, Moses says so clearly that Moab is forbidden from joining the assembly of Israel. And in Judges chapter 3, in the setting of this time, Moab had recently put Israel into slavery. So basically, for this man to move to Moab is just dumb. And notice in verse 2, we get a flurry of names. We're introduced to this man and his family, Elimelech, Naomi, and his two sons, Marlon and Killian, or Chilion. They are Ephrathites, which is their clan. They are from the town of Bethlehem and from in the tribe of Judah. Now, the names in verses 1 and 2 here are really important because their meanings add more color to the tragedy of this introduction. You see, Elimelech's name means my God is king. Bethlehem means house of bread. And Naomi means pleasant or sweet. So here's the irony, the tragic irony of these opening verses. The house of bread has no food. So the man named my God is king turns his back on the promised land and takes his sweet wife and sons off to enemy territory. Notice also in verse 1, the mention of Bethlehem and Moab. And again in verse 2, the mention of Bethlehem and Moab. The repetition here is important for us, and we'll come back to that in a moment. But while in Moab, as they journey on, tragedy strikes. So it's with great sadness that we read in verse 3 that Elimelech dies. Naomi has lost her husband, but if there's any consolation at the end of verse 3, she still has her two sons. And then we read in verse 4 that these two sons marry Moabite women, which again is not a good thing, given the echoes of the past failure of Israel in Numbers 25. These women are named Orpah and Ruth, and notice at the end of verse 4 that they lived in Moab for 10 years, and do you notice what's missing there in verse 4? There's no children. Famine is a judgment from God, and barrenness is also a curse from God. 
And then in verse 5, tragedy hits again. Both Marlon and Killian die in quick succession. Now, the Hebrew reader might have actually picked up that this might have been bound to have happened because Marlon roughly means to be sick and Killian means to be finished or to come to an end. So the tragedy gets rubbed in further as well with one more detail in the summary at the end of verse 5. Let me read again verse 5. And both Marlon and Killian died so that the woman was left without her sons and her husband. Do you notice what's missing there in verse 5? Their names. Names mean life. When a child is born, like to Andrew and Mel, one of the most important things that they do as a parent is they give that child a name. And so Andrew and Mel chose Elias, which is a lovely and beautiful name, meaning Yahweh is my God. A beautiful name given because life has come into the world. But by the end of verse 5, death has robbed Naomi not only of her husband and her sons, but also her name. She is referred to in verse 5 as just the woman. Gosh, the introduction to this story is deeply tragic. The promised land of life and abundance flowing with milk and honey has dried up. Naomi and her family believe Moab promised life, and so they went there. Moab promised life, but it delivered death. And by the end of verse 5, the names of Naomi's husbands and sons are gone. They are never mentioned again in the book. And even Naomi's name is gone. She went to Moab in search of life, but finds it is a land of death where names are erased. Friends, where is God in all of this? In this deeply dark and tragic story, in this introduction, it's fair to ask the question, what is God doing? Where is he? Where is God? When we turn to verse 6, we find out that he still is at work in the background. Naomi hears that God has visited his people and given them food. Or as Daniel Block in his wonderful commentary wittily puts it, the house of bread has been restocked. Notice again in verse 6 and 7 the repetition of where they are in the country of Moab, in the fields. She hears of this in the fields of Moab. We, the readers, keep getting our attention drawn to the locations of, this, of what's happening. And anyway, after hearing about God visiting his people, Naomi responds. You see what she does. She heard, she arose, and she set out. And now notice the repetition of another word in verses 6 and 7. The word return. The word for return or turn, uh, similar word, same word, appears ten times throughout this first chapter. And the idea of turning appears, I think, around, around 12 times in total. So here's a tip for reading the Bible. If you're trying to work out what is the main point of the passage, one thing to do is to see what the passage seems to repeat a lot or what appears to be the most crucial subject that everything else in the passage hangs from. In Ruth chapter 1, we're seeing a few things repeated quite a lot. The word return and the places of Bethlehem and Moab. Remember at the start of this story, Naomi and her family turn from Bethlehem to go to Moab. And now Naomi turns from Moab to return to Judah. But as she gets up to go in verses 8 and 9, somewhere between Moab and Bethlehem, 
Naomi looks at her two daughters-in-law and tells them, return home. Verse 8. But Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, her two daughters-in-law, go, return each of you to her mother's house. May, the, may Yahweh deal kindly with you as, he, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. Yahweh grant that you may find rest, each of you in the house of her husband. And then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. There's a, there's a thoughtful common sense to Naomi's request. Orpah and Ruth are from Moab. They have a shared culture there. They have a shared language and customs. They belong in Moab. And most of all, if they go back, they might be able to find a new husband. Now on the flip side, Naomi can offer nothing. The life of a widow was a life of extreme poverty. There was no social welfare net to catch her. The choice then seems pretty clear. Turn back home to a comfortable life. Don't follow me into a life of incredible hardship, of probably starvation and poverty, to a land where women are abused. See, as well in verses 8 and 9, that Naomi thanks them for their kindness. The word kindness there is a word that comes up a couple of times as well in this book. And it's the word hesed, which means covenant faithfulness or covenant kindness, loving kindness. The kindness where, which depends not on the circumstances, but on a promise. I will be loving and kind because I promise on my word to be loving and kind. Yahweh shows hesed to his people. When, when we are told in the Bible that God loves his people, he doesn't love them because they have deserved it. He doesn't love them because they are lovely. He loves them from his hesed, his promise to love them, his covenant promises to them. And so Naomi is hoping that Yahweh will show this same covenantal promised kindness to her daughters, and that Yahweh will give them rest. And then you look at verse 10. There's a sweet response in and of itself. They weep, they cry out, and in a mix of grief and hope and desperation and love, they say to her, no, we will return with you to your people. But then in verses 11 to 13, Naomi insists, turn back. She looks at her own life and says, it's too late for me. I don't have any more sons to look after me. I don't have any sons to marry you off to. And even if I got married tonight and fell pregnant tonight, would you wait around for them to be born and get old enough to be married? Naomi says it's too late for her, but it's not too late for her daughters. If they turn back to Moab, then they have hope. And so in verse 14, <clears throat> the daughters cry out again, and in a final tearful embrace, Orpah says goodbye. Now, in some senses, that's a sensible decision. The narrator doesn't criticize her for leaving, because at this point in the story, we kind of know that it makes sense. Moab has opportunities, her mother's home, a new husband, potential family, settling down, security. The narrator doesn't seem to make any comments, and yet we already know that Moab has proven to be a place of death. 
And so as Orpah turns back to Moab, like Elimelech and Marlon and Killian before her, her name is lost to biblical history. One daughter down, another to go. But this one is stubbornly clinging on to Naomi. So in verse 15, Naomi tells her daughter for the fourth time, return after your sister. And in verse 15, there's also this off-putting reference to her gods, as, as though Naomi wants Ruth to turn away from Yahweh to go back to the gods of Moab. It's a very surprising reference here. But the biggest surprise of the story actually comes in verse 16 and 17. Uh, having been told four times to return home, Ruth rejects this call. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. And then she makes the biggest and most grandest of commitments in some ways in all of scripture between people. Look at the pairing of the promises that she makes in verse 16 and 17. Where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people. Your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And then she calls on Yahweh, uh, she calls on Yahweh to witness a curse. She curses herself if she would fail to keep this promise. Now, this is stunning language. At first glance, this commitment to Naomi and to Yahweh makes no sense. Remember, they are standing between Bethlehem and Moab. And on the surface, Moab has more going for it. Her mother's home, a new husband, potential family. Settling down. Security. How did Ruth come to know Yahweh? We're not exactly sure, but what has she seen or understood of Yahweh so far? Nothing but loss. Yahweh was the God of Bethlehem, and there was no bread there. Yahweh was the God of Elimelech, and he died. Yahweh was the God of her husband and brother-in-law, and they died. Yahweh was the God of Naomi, and Naomi has just said in verse 13 that Yahweh has dealt bitterly with her. So why on earth would Ruth make such a commitment to Yahweh and to his people? And the answer is in the promises that she makes and the language that she uses. It's covenantal language. It's the language that God himself used when he made his covenant with the Israel in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Ruth has converted Yahweh is not just another God among many. She has thrown herself in with Yahweh, no matter the cost. Like the life and security she could have had in Moab, she forsakes to follow Yahweh. And she does this because in the language that she uses, she shows that she understands. She understands that Yahweh is a promise-making God and a promise-keeping God. It's a costly decision. Make no mistake. On the surface, she is turning away from life and security in Moab. On the surface, she is turning away towards a life of poverty and hardship. 
On the surface, this kind of decision makes no sense. And maybe that's why Naomi in verse 18 doesn't say anything. Either she has just been left speechless or she realizes that Ruth is so stubborn that she just doesn't want to say anymore. So the two women return in verse 19. And notice again the repetition of Bethlehem. The narrator doesn't think we're dumb, but it's being drilled into us the choice that has been made. As Naomi and Ruth walk into the the town, everyone is stirred. They see it all. The gossip channels are working in overdrive, but something seems off. The women notice immediately and they ask, is this Naomi? Like 10 years earlier, sweet and pleasant Naomi had left with her family. 10 years later, the experience of life had left her anything but pleasant. Husband and sons, their names are engraved on tombstones in a foreign land. Her name no longer fits the situation. Pleasantness has been replaced by bitterness. Fullness has been replaced by emptiness. And Naomi blames God for this. Verse 20, the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. Verse 21, I went away full and Yahweh has brought me back empty. Why call me pleasant when Yahweh has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? You hear that sense in which she blames God for this circumstance. And in the final verse, verse 22, we have our whole summary of this situation. And notice again the repetition of Bethlehem and Moab. Verse 22, so Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. See, Bethlehem, the house of bread, was empty and Naomi went away full. And now the house is full, but she has returned empty. She turned her back on Bethlehem in the promised land of life. She went to Moab being promised life, but only receiving death. And that's it. The curtain comes down on Act 1. And we're left deeply saddened and deeply unsatisfied. This surely cannot be the end. Ruth chapter 1 has opened up with a tragic story of choices. The main choice faced by everyone in this passage is the choice between Moab and Bethlehem. Bethlehem is the promise in the promised land of life or Moab which promised life but provided death. For Naomi and her family, the choice to turn to Moab led to disaster. For Orpah, she chose to return to Moab and then fades from history. In deep grief and bitterness, Naomi turned back to Bethlehem. It's this choice of turning, to turn away from death and to turn towards life, back to the promised land, back to where God had visited and dwells among his people. But the journey home is filled with bitterness. Never mind that Ruth has shown remarkable loyalty and remained faithfully at her side. In those last bits of in the conversation with the women in Bethlehem, Ruth just seems to fade into the background. But the choice to choose life over death remains. And while we're left wondering what good could come from this story, this story is also a gentle warning. 
the repetition of the words turn and the contrast of the places of Moab and Bethlehem make this opening chapter a chapter about which way you will turn towards life or towards death. Moab and Bethlehem represent two worlds. Bethlehem in Judah is in the promised land of life. The promised land flowing with milk and honey, which remember in Joshua, as we, saw, as we heard from Ben a few, just a few weeks ago, the promised land points us forward to our eternal inheritance in Christ Jesus. Only in Christ is life found. Moab offered abundance when life in the promised land got hard. But instead of life, Naomi found out the hard way that it took everything she thought she had. Ruth 1 offers a choice between life and death for Naomi and her family. And as Christians reading Ruth today, tracing the Bible's entire storyline to fulfillment in Jesus, we're being reminded to turn to Christ to find life. Turn to Christ or turn away from him and find death. Now this stark big choice is mirrored in the Gospel of John that Alice read for out earlier. See in Ruth 1, Elimelech and his family, Naomi and her family, turn away from the house of bread. In John chapter 6, Jesus calls himself the bread of life. But commitment to him demands hard things. So the hard, so hard that a whole bunch of those who were following Jesus decide that it's too much. They grumble at what Jesus is teaching and offering. And then we read in John chapter 6, verse 66, that they turned and they walked away. They turned their backs on the bread of life. And if I might use the language that that we have been hearing today, Jesus turns to his remaining 12 disciples and asks them simply, do you want to turn away as well? And to which Peter responds, Lord, to whom shall we turn to? You have the words of eternal life. What a great point that Peter makes. Life here and now and eternal life to come is only found in Jesus. Following Jesus is not going to be easy. But the sometimes difficult but daily choice for us is a choice between turning to the bread of life or turning away from him. But honestly, there is nowhere and no one else we can turn to for eternal life. So which choice will we make? In Ruth 1, Moab and Bethlehem are real places with real consequences. Moab offered life but took it instead. Bethlehem looked barren but was ultimately the place where God's promises were fulfilled. The choice between the two is epitomized by Orpah and Ruth. Orpah chooses Moab and disappears. Ruth makes a costly decision to turn her back on what seems sensible to follow Naomi and head to the promised land in Bethlehem. And for us today, the choice uh, to choose life is to turn to Jesus and in trust and faith. And like Ruth, this decision may be very costly to us personally. Ruth made that call with little to no hope to guide her. But for us, with the gospel fully proclaimed, the costliness of our decision 
is now seen in the light of eternal life and glory and joy forevermore. So today, if you're not a believer or if you're not sure, Ruth chapter 1 is encouraging you, calling out to you to turn from Moab and turn to Christ. To come out of there and find real and true life in Jesus. To find forgiveness of your sins, reconciliation with God, fellowship with other believers, and eternal joy forevermore. Is that what you want? If you want to find out more, then please talk to your fr- one of your friends from Esley Church or drop myself a message or Pastor Ben as well. Ruth chapter 1 is also an encouragement to those who may have backslid, to those who are watching in at home. Maybe you're in danger of backsliding. There may be many reasons why you've walked away from the faith. But the encouragement to you is to not walk away. There is still hope to turn back to him. Following Jesus is hard, but there is no eternal life or joy or forgiveness found in anyone else. Over the past few months, I've spent some time with a few people recently, hearing their stories, hearing their struggles, sitting with people who are so close and on the verge of walking away from church and the faith. I'm so glad that some of them have actually ended up joining us at Esley Church. So if you're someone who has turned away from Jesus, there's always a chance now for you to turn back to him. And to Christian listeners here and to the viewers at home, the encouragement and challenge to you is to recognize that Moab is enticing. Our world offers so many good things, and especially when times are hard, it can make sense to just drop Jesus and find comfort and encouragement and security in this world. But remember, keep remembering the encouragements of Scripture and even our own experience of this world that as enticing as it is, it ultimately disappoints and only real and true life is found in Christ. One final thing before we finish today. One final encouragement, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian. Today's chapter has been primarily about the choice between Bethlehem and Moab, between life and death. We've also seen very quietly, though, that God is working in the background, providentially at work. And while the chapter on the whole is very tragic, there is one silver lining to this dark cloud. Notice the final sentence of verse 22. The final sentence is that Naomi and Ruth have returned to Bethlehem at the time of harvest. The story started today in famine. And the last word is harvest. The providence of God in this chapter may have been bitter, but it always, but God, the providence of God always has the last word. And it is a good word. So let me pray and give thanks for that. Father in heaven, thank you that you are always at work even at the times when you seem most silent, even at times when life is filled with deep chaos and tragedy, you are always providentially at work. We know in those times of tragedy, in those times of hardship, there lays a choice before us. 
Do we turn our backs on the bread of life? Or do we keep trusting your son? Father, help us to see, as with Peter, that there is no one else to turn to, no one else who has the words of eternal life. Help us to believe that. Help us to cling on to that. And to know that you are our good God who keeps his promises to us. And we pray, Father, that you'd help us to see this and bless us in this way. For your glory and our joy forevermore in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.